0: beginning in verse 53 of Matthew 13. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and are not all his sisters with us where then did this man get all these things and they took offense at him but Jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household and he did not do many works there because of their unbelief at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants this is John the Baptist he has been raised from the dead that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him
1: for Herod
0: had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother Philip's wife because John had been saying to him it is not lawful For you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus.
1: Thank you for that, David. You're going to want to hold your place there in Matthew 13. We'll back up there in just a few minutes, so hold your place there in God's Word. It's good to be with you this morning. It's a great day to be gathered together and worship our King and song and uh, in the Word, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in just a few minutes after we walk through Matthew 13, portions of Matthew 14. It's really good to be gathered with you this morning. Before we dive in, I want to share something really neat in the life of our church that we could celebrate this morning, I'm looking for Jake and Whitney, they're right back here. Jake and Whitney, Beverly, you guys just wave at everybody. If you were here last week, you know Jake and Whitney, Beverly, are our missionaries sent out from our church. They've planted their lives in the Czech Republic to make Jesus known, to make disciples, to sow the seed, so to speak, like we've been talking about. They've been here in the States for a while. They were there during lockdown, through all of COVID. You heard all that story, a really tough first year. They got back here in the States. They had to get visas to get back in. Jake got his visa. Their little girl, Morgan, got her visa. And Whitney didn't get her visa. It was denied by the Czech Republic. You guys know we've been praying about that for weeks and really months as a church. We, we as toge- together last Sunday as a church, prayed, Lord, specifically, open up the door and give her her visa. So this week, answer to prayer directly. Uh, her appeal to revisit that process was accepted. They're going to go back through that visa process. The EU opened up uh, Europe to Americans, so they get to go back into their country. Here's the bottom line. They get on a plane tomorrow, and they fly out, and they're sent back to the Czech Republic. So can we just give the Lord a praise for his goodness this morning? You see them, you encourage them, you stop and pray with them. Uh, They are our missionaries sent out to make Jesus known on the other side of the world and god is faithful and good so we're grateful for that this morning matthew 13 so let me just catch you up maybe you're a guest if you are boy we're really glad you're here this morning maybe you've not been quite reading through matthew with us but we are going through this great gospel of matthew this year together as a church and we come to the end of chapter 13 now To give you the context of what we're just about to read or what David just read for us, let me remind you a couple things. Big picture of Matthew is this, and you've heard this over and over until you're probably sick of it, but I'm going to keep saying it to you. Big picture, point of the Gospel of Matthew is this Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah King, He's the one. Matthew writing to the Jewish people to declare this Jesus is the promised one. He fulfills all the prophecies. His virgin birth. He had a divine forerunner in John the Baptist. He has all authority over creation and over demons and over sickness and even death. And we've seen that in the first 13 chapters of Matthew. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the King. And then in chapter 13, Jesus has begun these discussions about his kingdom. A king has a kingdom. In 13, we've been reading about these parables of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We define that as this king has a redemptive rule and reign. The kingdom of heaven is God's redemptive rule and reign in Christ Jesus. That's happening right now today in the life of every believer right here on earth. One day his kingdom is going to be visible. It's going to fill the earth and every tongue, every knee will bow and recognize him as king. Come Lord Jesus. We talked about that last week. Today we find ourselves between those two events. The cross of the king when he died and the day that he comes to be crowned as king. We're living in that period today. What does that period look like? What is it characterized by? Jesus gave us these parables in Matthew 13, and we looked at those last week. Not going to review all those. Hopefully you've gone back and read those, studied those. Talked about the wheat and the tares, that in this time now, the believers and the unbelievers, it is God's purpose that they live side by side in this world today for missional purposes. We talked about the treasure and the uh uh, the fine pearl the value of the kingdom of heaven we talked about the mustard seed that man it may look like we're outnumbered now kingdom of heaven may look very insignificant now especially when jesus was teaching these disciples but it will fill the earth and the kingdom of god transforms us completely from the inside out over and over jesus taught these parables of the kingdom but we spent more time on one particular parable and I want to revisit that just briefly because that sets the stage for the next few chapters in Matthew remember the one parable that we spent the most time on was the farmer right the the farmer goes out to sow we talked about that he takes his seed and he he sows it faithfully and how that seed is received depends on the soil And he talked about there was a hard soil, that seed fell on the soil and it couldn't penetrate, it bore no fruit. There was the thorny soil and and the rocky soil and we talked about that. And then finally there was the prepared soil that bore much fruit. Now, Here's what I've been wrestling with coming out of that parable and I think what sets the stage for this morning and even some further reading in the Gospel of Matthew is this. The seed and the sower, that parable, taught us a couple things that stood out. One, God's kingdom advances through the faithful proclamation of truth. We sow the seed. We are to sow the seed here in our families. We're to sow the seed in things like VBS. We're to sow the seed when we gather here together, the seed of truth. We sow the seed in other cultures when we're sent out to places like the Czech Republic. We sow the seed. That was obvious. The other thing that jumped out at me from this parable and maybe you've been wrestling with is this. Jesus seems to indicate that more will reject in unbelief than respond to the gospel in fruit and faithfulness. I'll just be honest, that's that's messed with me, Lib. I've wrestled with that a little bit. Jesus teaches four kinds of soil. Seventy-five percent of those soils ultimately reject an unbelief. Twenty-five percent, if you will, or one fourth. One fourth equals twenty-five percent. That's pretty good math, isn't it? Why is that? I think it helps us understand why Jesus goes in, or Matthew goes into the discussion he goes into at the end of chapter 13. Here was the takeaway, and I've tried to capture it this morning, and I, I want us to grasp this day is this, is that unbelief is our natural human condition. If left to myself, apart from the Spirit of God, apart from the grace of God, unbelief, rejection of Jesus as king and lord and life and master and joy and all that will be my response. We look at these three soils and I don't know how you understand them but here's the reality. Apart from God's redemptive transformative grace I'm the hard stony soil or I'm the thorny soil or I'm the superficial soil unbelief comes natural. And it's only by the grace of God Scripture says this, and it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. None understands, none seeks for God. Then in Ephesians, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's my natural condition of unbelief, of rejection, in which you once walked in this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work of the son's disobedience. Unbelief is our natural response. Rejection would be the response of all of us. Here's what I want you to hear this morning but for the grace of God amen same passage in Ephesians goes on and says but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses God made us alive together with Christ it is God's mercy that enables us to believe it is God who prepares the good soil And what you see over the next few chapters of Matthew is is Matthew, the writer, under the inspiration of the Spirit, giving you illustrations of these different responses. But you see more responses of unbelief than you do of genuine fruit-bearing faith that endures. Unbelief, apart from God's grace, is our natural condition. We are deeply, desperately, eternally dependent on the grace of God. Amen? Thankful for His grace. So the next couple weeks in Matthew 13 and then Matthew 14, we're going to look at two things. We're going to first look at two pictures of unbelief. We're going to look at those this morning. Matthew gives us those. Next week, we'll look at two pictures of faith that bears fruit, different types of soil. So this morning, it's not always easy to read, but we're going to look at two pictures straight from this that Matthew gives of unbelief, rejection of Jesus as Messiah, as who he is. First picture is going to be a picture of prideful unbelief, of familiarity. He goes to his hometown. Everybody's so familiar with Jesus. Second picture is a picture of Herod the king, who has a superstitious type understanding of Jesus. Both result in hard rejection and unbelief this morning. All right? So that's a lot of introduction to dive back into Matthew 13, verse 53. So look with me. Let's walk through. I'm gonna pull out a few big ideas from these passages. Faith and unbelief. Let's see the differences, let's see their characteristics as we see them here in Matthew. 13. verse 53 says and when Jesus had finished these parables so Matthew's making that connection back to the parables that were just taught he says he went away from there in verse 54 coming to his own hometown Jesus comes home if you will this is Nazareth this is the town where he grew up Jesus the Nazarene of Nazareth he goes back to Nazareth so remember when Jesus goes back to Nazareth everybody remembers Jesus as a little kid Everybody remembers Jesus. It was a small town. I've been to Nazareth. So it's not even a big town today. Everybody remembers Jesus, Mary's boy. Everybody remembers Jesus, the carpenter. So he shows back up in his hometown. And he comes in not as the little boy. He comes in as the Messiah, the king. They struggle with that. Verse 54, and coming to his own hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. We'll come back to that word in just a minute. They were astonished. You can mark that word. It's very important. And they said about Jesus. Remember, Jesus demands a response. Here's the way they understand Jesus. They say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty words? See, the Jesus they remember as the carpenter, as Mary's boy, is not quite lining up with the Jesus who's now showing up, declaring himself to be king. They're struggling with this conflict in their own heart. Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? We watched him grow up. We know this guy. Come on, what's he talking about, all this Messiah and kingdom? Is not his mother called Mary? You know, this is the chatter around the coffee houses you know he's he's saying he's messiah but he's mary's boy you remember mary she lived down the street you know like it's mary's boy keep going are not his brothers james and joseph and simon and judas we, we know his family we know his brothers by the way this is the catholics least favorite verse jesus had brothers <laughs> meaning mary had other children bible's clear 56, are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? There's a disconnect in their memory and their understanding of who Jesus is and how Jesus now is revealing himself and who he is revealing himself to be. There's a disconnect. Verse 57, a really heavy verse says, and they took offense at him. Mark that word. We'll talk about that word in just a minute. The word offense means to stumble. It's not just a passive response. The word offense is literally to come to the conclusion that Jesus is just not all that special. He's not who he claims to be. It doesn't add up in their mind. Jesus said to them, verse 57, a prophet, declaring himself here to be a prophet as well, a priest, king, he's all that. A prophet is not without honor except, this is evidently a proverb that was said during that day, everybody understood what this means. He says a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown where everybody knows him, everybody's familiar with him, and even in his own household. Verse 58, and as a result, he did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. It's not time to quit, is it? I heard the alarm. i just can't. Just making sure. <laughs> Tragedy of unbelief. The Bible's very clear. The reaction of the people is unbelief. So from that, we can draw some understanding of what it means, this idea of this soil that Jesus talks about that responds in unbelief. Now, I'm not, let's be clear. I'm not talking about the same kind of doubt that Pastor Paul taught on a few weeks ago. Christians can kind of come in and out of, of occasional doubt, of wrestling, of Lord, I'm struggling, but there, but it's always pursuit of the Lord. This is no, this is unbelief. The evidence is out there i'm coming to the conclusion that you're not who you say you are however understand unbelief is our natural human response we will be left there apart from the grace of god so in this lord help us understand some of the characteristics of unbelief i've got three big ideas that flow out of this going to challenge us going to help us here's big idea number one unbelief disguises itself with outward enthusiasm. Now I'm reading along in this passage and I come to the verse in verse 54 where it says as he was teaching them they were astonished. And you might read that and go oh what a great response to Jesus but you have to do a little digging and understand. The word astonished is a outward response of wonder, of awe, of curiosity they're a part of the crowd Jesus is doing some things they don't quite understand they, what's watch this from a distance from a distance they respond, the Bible says with astonishment the Bible a few verses later says but it's really unbelief, how can that be? watch this unbelief disguises itself with outward enthusiasm what does that look like today even in our own lives and our church culture where it's so easy to become familiar with the things of God here's some of the things this can look like today number one it can look like genuinely generally positive of the things of God from a distance You might be that person who when asked or talk about the things of God or church attendance, you know, church attendance is fine. The Bible, it's a good book, I think it's true. Heck, I think we ought to even pray in schools. You know, that's a good thing. You're genuinely, generally positive of the things of God. But here's the kicker from a distance. But when the king of the universe begins to call upon you and declaring that he is not just a good teacher or something that we can from a distance say, oh, well, sure, I'm all that he is Lord and that he is king and that he is sovereign, then the astonishment can quickly turn to offense and a stumbling block. Maybe you know some people like that. Positive of the things of God from a distance, but don't get too close. Don't call me to change. Cannot tolerate passages like this when Jesus says to a very similar crowd, and we've gone over this verse a lot recently. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, not in the crowd, not from a distance, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, Follow me. Jesus paid the complete price for us to know him. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. But we trust him with our entire lives. It costs us everything. We lay down our lives. That's just too radical. I'd rather stay in the crowd, applaud when necessary. I'm okay with the things of God. Just don't get too close. Matthew and Jesus here seem to indicate that that is masked unbelief, because Jesus, if he is anything, he is Lord, nothing less. He goes on, he gives us another characteristic here of unbelief. Unbelief disguises itself with outward enthusiasm. Secondly, unbelief prioritizes personal experience and human understanding above divine revelation. Oh, this is tough. So Jesus comes in and he's declaring truth from his very mouth. He is God. He's declaring revelation. He speaks. It's the word of God. And he comes in. And their response to his teaching and to all that he's done is this. Verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? In other words, here's how I remember Jesus. Here's my personal experience with Jesus. Here's how I've grown up understanding Jesus. And you hold out the revelation of God's word and it doesn't quite fit my human experience, which one takes priority. Every single one of us in this room wrestle with that. They certainly wrestled with it here. The Jesus that they remember are the Jesus of their experience, the Jesus of history that, that walked with it. It doesn't add up in their mind and they lean into their personal understanding and their personal experience and it results in unbelief. Jesus doesn't fit the box that I have. That's the outcome. You may ask, well, what does that look like in our lives today? Maybe it looks something like this. Maybe you've said this. Maybe you've heard others say this, something something along these lines. Well, you know, I know what the Bible says, but I just don't think God would. So you're exalting what you think God should and would do versus what he's revealed himself clearly to be in the word of God. Or maybe you say something like this. Well, my whole life I've believed this. And now you're telling me the Bible says it. I've been taught this my whole life. Can I be fair and honest with you? You could have been taught wrong. You could have been believing wrong about who this king is. Scripture and divine revelation is the final authority, not my personal experience or even how I was brought up. Here's, here's a good one. You all have heard this. I've heard this before. I, listen, I know what the Bible says, but... Or maybe this one. I've added a little bit to this one. This is the same thing, part B. Ready? I know what the Bible says and I know what I'm doing goes against the counsel of my elders and I I know it goes against the counsel of all my brothers and sisters in Christ but this just feels so right to me. Be careful. Because what you're doing in that moment is looking much more like unbelief than it is faith, trusting in Jesus to reveal himself and make himself known through the divine word of God. That's what they were doing here. So unbelief can disguise itself with outward enthusiasm. Unbelief prioritizes personal experience and human understanding above divine revelation thirdly and finally. This is heavy. Unbelief always progresses into deeper darkness. That's what happens here. I guess it's a tough pill to swallow. This, this group of people who had been exposed to so much revelation and so much activity of Jesus. The Messiah had lived in their midst. He had heard, they had heard his teaching. All the revelation that had been given to them. Verse 57 says, after their responses of unbelief. And they're trying to work it through their personal experience. And trying to exalt their human understanding. he came to verse 57. And this is a heavy verse. It says, and they took offense at him. They took offense at The word offense, mark this in your Bible, if you haven't already, it's really important. The word offense means to stumble. Particularly it means it's used in the Gospels when Jesus doesn't meet the human messianic expectations of the Jews. Jesus, you're not behaving, acting, saying what we think you should be, our expectation of who you ought to be. And thus you become a stumbling block, and we conclude that you're not who you say you are. Jesus, you're nothing special at all. And that attitude of unbelief always progresses into deeper and deeper darkness, if that's the condition of our heart. Pastor Mike, I get that, that's kind of heavy, so what does that look like today? Let me give you a couple quick illustrations, very quick. That can look like today we take offense when tragedy strikes or in a situation of loss and pain. Say, I don't get what you're saying, help me. That when something is taken from us or we experience pain or loss of something we hold dear we can't get our minds around why jesus would ever allow that or do that and rather a trust in the goodness and the greatness and the beauty of our king What that reveals in us is ultimately an unbelieving heart that doesn't trust our king. And you say, how can you say that? Someone goes through such great loss and they end up in this bitterness. Listen, bitterness, or loss or tragedy or pain may be real and hurtful and we've all gone through it. But does not cause unbelief. It may reveal unbelief. It doesn't cause it. The same way on the side of a genuine born-again believer where the seed of the Word of God has taken root and they're bearing fruit and the Spirit of Jesus resides in the heart. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Christians will undergo testing and what will show forth is like gold. It doesn't create faith, but it reveals the genuine faith that's there. Doesn't mean we don't struggle. Doesn't mean we don't have those dark nights of the soul. Doesn't mean we don't weep and mourn and grieve when loss comes. But genuine believers will come out on the other side showing forth the genuine faith that's in them. But some lapse into a lifetime of bitterness and resentment and hostility toward God. You know why? Because ultimately God didn't behave and act like they thought God should have behaved and act. And he has become a stumbling block. You have taken offense at him. And that sustained over time, Matthew 13 says, is evidence of unbelief. Wow. Heavy. Heavy. So here you have an illustration in the story of Jesus' hometown of what unbelief looks like. And we'll give you a second quicker illustration, in the Bible does, or a second quicker picture of Unbelief. So we saw Jesus' hometown. Matthew continues on and he gives us a second one that doesn't quite make as much sense to us. So let me try to jump right into that. Jump on over to chapter 14. So we've seen the picture of unbelief because of their familiarity. They they end up rejecting Jesus altogether. He doesn't fit their box, if you will. They have this unbelief that's revealed. Come to chapter 14. Go see a second picture. It's this prideful superstitious unbelief in the story of herod now if you're reading the law in the gospel of matthew you come to this story of herod you you might end up scratching your head going i'm not even sure how this story fits let me try to help you quickly and then we'll make some applications celebrate the lord's supper together 14.1 at that time herod the tetrarch heard about the fame of jesus I'm not going to go into great detail. You can do your own research. Herod was the king, de facto, if you will, of Israel. He was under the rule of the Romans. Rome is in charge at this time. But the figurehead over that region was Herod. You say, Herod seems to live forever. He's all over the Bible. Well, this is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great lived during the time of Jesus. This is his son, Herod Antipas. He's living during this time. and He's going to use him as an illustration. Verse 2. And he says to his servants, Herod's trying to figure out who this Jesus is, he says, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So Herod responds to the clear evidence of who Jesus is and says, well, I I know, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's got this superstitious view of Jesus. You say, well, why in the world is that here? Well, Matthew now takes the opportunity to give you a quick historical flashback of the relationship between John the Baptist and Herod. You say, okay, why is this here? It doesn't seem to flow. Here, I'm going to give you a quick understanding. You see rejection and unbelief of Jesus directly. Now you're going to see unbelief of the messenger of Jesus. That's the point. That's why it's here. So recounts this. Come to verse 3. It says, for Herod had seized John, messenger of Jesus, and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife. (laughs) Let me just say, this is the section, you could call this the soap opera section of Matthew. It gets really crazy here. I'm not gonna go into all the details, but it's this gory, adulterous relationship of this King Herod. Verse three says, he took John into custody threw him into prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife. Why is that there? Well, really quick, Herod left Jerusalem, goes to Rome, visits his brother Philip, falls in love with his brother Philip's wife. Problem is both men are married, falls in love with this girl, so he goes home, divorces his wife, gets her to divorce Philip. They begin this incestuous, adulterous relationship, and John... In presenting the message of the kingdom and the gospel to Herod, calls out his sin that is entangling him. How do you know that? Verse 4. Herod had thrown John into prison, verse 4, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. She's not your wife, man. You pursue this other wife, she's not your wife. Now, I'm not going to sidestep the issue of marriage and divorce. You say, is that the point here? That's not the issue here. We're going to deal with that in detail in Matthew chapter 18, I promise. But the Bible does not recognize this marriage at all. John doesn't recognize this marriage. He calls it out in his efforts to reach Herod with the message of Jesus. And though he wanted to put him to death, Herod wanted to kill John, for he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So Herod fears the people, Herod fears his wife, Herod fears Rome, Herod fears all these things. Then it happened, verse 6, and when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and it pleased Herod. So Herodias, this wife now of Herod, I know it gets crazy, wants to put an end to John the Baptist. So she sends her daughter in, there's this drunken party going in in the court of Herod. Her daughter dances for Herod and pleases him, if you will, till he makes this ridiculous vow, verse 7, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Verse 8, prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist. So Herod got himself into a predicament. He makes this vow in front of all of his dinner guests because he was carried on by his flesh and says, What do you want? She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. The story goes on, says the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Now again, we could spend a whole long time talking about it. I'm just going to try to draw some quick principles out of what's going on here. John is held out as the messenger of the king. The unbelief of Herod is rejection of the messenger. You say, I don't understand why this is here. Remember, Jesus is not only declaring to the people, he's teaching the disciples who are going to be sent out as messengers. And he's using Herod and this illustration of John the Baptist as an example to teach his disciples who they're going to go out and sow the seed and face rejection. Three big ideas, very quick, here you go unbelief as it's revealed here in the life of Herod fears lesser things more than God himself in the face of the message of the gospel of Jesus in the face of the declaration of John who Jesus was behold the Lamb of God, all the teaching of John Herod was more afraid of Herodias more afraid of the people, more afraid of Rome you fill in the blank and had this very short-sighted, limited understanding of who Jesus was and it. Re- resulted in unbelief in his life. He feared lesser things rather than fearing the one true God. See, that as a characteristic of unbelief. See, we ultimately bow a knee to what we fear most, by the way. We ultimately bow a knee to what we fear most. See that in the life of Herod. Second big idea. Unbelief rejects the gospel brought by God's messengers. See, the reason this is here is I want you to understand Jesus is trying to instruct his disciples. And he says, sometimes you guys have witnessed rejection of me as I have taught and I've sown the seed. He says, but I want to give you this illustration of John who was my messenger. He too was rejected. Sometimes unbelief rejects the gospel brought by God's messengers. Verse 12, and his disciples, John came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. That's huge. Jesus saw everything that happened to John. Jesus was fully aware of everything that happens to John. You keep reading, Jesus grieved deeply by what happened to John, who as his faithful messenger was rejected by Herod in unbelief. All right, Pastor Mike, I get that so far. How we're drawing all this together, what's the point? Let me ask a final question, and then we'll take this into response and application. Did Jesus and Herod ever meet personally? See, I don't even know why that matters. Why does that matter? I mean, we we see that Herod rejects the message of John, his messenger. But during the life of Herod, does the Bible ever show that Jesus and Herod met personally? Sure does. Let me show you because this will tie it all together for you this morning. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 7. Jesus is on trial. We're about a year later, the disciples have scattered. Pilate is questioning Jesus on trial. Pilate realizes he's in a pickle. He doesn't know what to do with the Jews. They're crying for his crucifixion. He knows he has an innocent man on his hands. What's he going to do? Then he realizes, wait a minute. This whole thing is happening under the jurisdiction of Herod. He sends him to Herod. And Luke tells us that account in Luke 23 verse seven quickly, and he says, "And he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. This is Pilate. He sends Jesus there, and he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus. Now remember, he's already rejected the messenger. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see Jesus. Why? He had this superstitious understanding of Jesus like a lucky rabbit's foot. Say, so where do you get that from? Keep reading. Because he had heard about him, into verse 8, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him quickly. Hey, Jesus, do a trick. Jesus, now's your chance. I'm giving you an opportunity, do a trick, show me a sign, work a miracle, do something, Jesus, to show who you are. And Herod stands there as if he's the one in authority over Jesus. And you say, how's Jesus going to respond? This is huge. Verse 9, so he, Herod, questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. Wow. Jesus doesn't give Herod a word. You know why? Because Herod had already rejected by rejecting the messenger. That's the point. Herod had already rejected Jesus, so nothing else Jesus was going to do could change the heart of Herod because he had already rejected the messenger. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. Here's your last big idea. Hope this encourages and challenges you. Big idea is this. Rejecting God's messenger, sharing the gospel message, is rejecting Jesus himself. And that is to be encouragement to you. That was to be encouragement to the disciples. They were going to be sent out to the ends of the earth to sow the seed of the gospel. They had seen Jesus be rejected personally by his own people. And they were saying, now listen, when you go and you sow the seed and you faithfully declare the gospel and you tell that neighbor and you tell that friend, you may get a host of responses. But I want you to know something. When you are rejected, Ultimately, it is me that they are rejecting. Go and make Jesus know. And he makes this clear again in Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Brothers and sisters, to us as his disciples sent out on mission and to the disciples that we're hearing that today, you go and you faithfully sow the seed. Some of that seed is going to fall on good soil and some are going to respond in faith and repentance and they're going to bear much fruit and you get to be a part of that. But many are going to reject. Jesus says, you listen. They're not ultimately rejecting you. They're ultimately rejecting me. He saw everything that happened to John. He knew everything that happened to John grieved over everything that happened to John, and he said to those disciples, you go, you sow the seed and you make me know. I ask you just to bow your head here for a moment this morning and give you a second. We're going to respond by going into a time of the Lord's Supper together. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I just want to remind you what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper just in a worshipful time right now again, maybe your head bowed eyes closed, whatever allows you to focus on what you've heard whatever allows you to focus on what we're getting ready to do and take the Lord's Supper maybe the word of God has captured your heart this morning and you realize, wait a minute my heart's more characterized by unbelief than by Say if that's you this morning, the Lord's Supper is not your first step. Your first step is to respond in faith and repentance to Jesus, your crucified King, resurrected Lord, and the one who bears your sin. At any moment during the Lord's Supper, if you need to speak with someone, I invite you just to slip out through those doors to the left the area called the hub. For the rest of us, just a reminder, the Lord's Supper is a gift, it's an ordinance. By the way, if some of you need to slip out and pick up your little cups, they're out in the foyer, you can certainly do that. Lord's Supper's a gift given to the church for a couple reasons. Jesus, the night before he stood before Herod and Pilate and was crucified, gathered those disciples in that upper room, and he said, this is going to be an ordinance for you. Throughout the next 2,000 years, you're going to regularly, as my people, take bread that's going to represent my body that's given for you you're going to take a cup and it's going to have fruit of the vine juice in it and it's going to represent my blood so that my people will never stray from the gospel message you've been given a message of the gospel we're redeemed by his blood it is his life that makes redemption possible his death on the cross we're to never stray far from the gospel so the lord's supper is given to remember we're going to do that this morning secondly the lord's supper is given to examine examine your heart apostle paul writes about it first corinthians corinthians 11 we read it almost every time let a man examine himself before he takes the lord's supper meaning take a moment lord is there anything in my heart my life right now that i'm unwilling to call sin unwilling to confess something i need to make right with you lord is there anything between a brother or sister in this church body or another brother or sister that i'm unwilling to make right you may not need to take the Lord's Supper, you may need to go first to them, make that right. It's one of the reasons we take the Lord's Supper regularly as a church, so it's a time to remember, it's a time to examine, if you're here and you're not a member of Tri-Cities but you're a born-again believer, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us, parents the Lord's supper is not for your unbelieving children yet, again, opportunity for you to so see. talk to them about why, why they're not ready, what it means to Trust. Exercise faith and repentance in Jesus. So I'm going to give you just a few seconds here. Prepare your heart, then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So you take a moment. Reflect, remember, examine, and I'll walk us through the Lord's Supper.